welcome to 2023. Uh. <laughs> this is Killer Hangover in the year 2023. <laughs> We've made it. <laughs> hey, in February, February 1st, we'll be three years old. Oh, wow. That's a knock me down a peg. That's scary to think that we've been doing this for three years. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. Wow. I know. It is crazy. Well, this is Beth. And this is Bettina. And this is episode 128 of Killer Hangover. And this week, we are covering the state of Alaska. Alaska. I have the true crime this week. And I have the paranormal and the drink. Okay, so, so I... What are you drinking? <laughs> what are you drinking for me? <laughs> I found so many cool recipes for a white Christmas margarita with coconut. It's not Christmas, It's though. not Christmas, but it looks wintry because it's white. And then you sprinkle some cranberries <laughs> and put a sprig of rosemary in it. And it looks so okay. pretty. So pretty. But... I decide not to do that. <laughs> Good call. Because I think this is coming out like January, what, 9th? <laughs> it's so cold out. And that's why, but I didn't think. Unfortunately, I yes, didn't think it, it was right to change the name of something <laughs> that's out there. But you just changed the ingredients. White winter <laughs> margarita and then just change the ingredients, right? I could do that. No. Um, so. What I decided to do, since it is cold outside and this really warms you up, I decided to reintroduce you to Gluvine or hot mulled wine. And I know the last time we did it, gosh, I don't remember when we did it. I think we have covered it. No, we have. We really need to get a list going. <laughs> what happened to that cocktail book we were going to make? Yeah, okay. <laughs> we will. We will. We'll do that and we'll take our trips and, <laughs> and we'll make money. And, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's going to happen. This year is the year. It is. It is. I know okay. it. I'm putting it out there. I'm manifesting. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Anyways, I'll put it back. I'll put it out to there Gruvine. too. Uh, yeah. I think the last time we covered it, in fact, I know the last time we covered it, we shared the bottle of Gluvine. Not the whole bottle. I'm pretty sure we didn't drink the no, whole bottle. No, that would be hard to drink because it's kind of sweet. That would hurt your tummy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to give you a recipe this time for Gluvine to be made at home. And of course, this isn't for one cup. This is for, you know, you have guests coming over and you make it on the stove. Hey, you can make it in a crock pot or something like that too and keep it warm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So six and a half cups of red wine. Now, don't use the expensive red wine. You're going to mix stuff into here and cook it. So don't. In fact, you can get a lower end wine. Don't get the real sweet, okay. though, because you're going to add one cup of sugar. Oh, yikes. Yeah, don't get a sweet one. Four cups of cranberry juice cocktail. Two cups of apple juice. And none of this has any you know sugar in it either. exactly so you know what if i was making it i'd put a fourth a cup yeah i was just actually gonna say i don't even know if i'd put in a whole no cup of sugar. i wouldn't that's what the recipe calls for but i wouldn't it's way too way too much 24 whole cloves not 23 not 25 24 <laughs> 12 whole allspice not 11, not 13, but 12. This is like exact. literally like a Christmassy drink, though. You got 24 days <laughs> till Christmas Eve and then the 12 days of Christmas. It's January 9th. <laughs> and we are pre-recording this in our defense. Like this is like the week before Christmas as we're recording this. In our defense. Uh, and then <laughs> you can't defense. forget the cinnamon. It's six and a half sticks of cinnamon. I can't think about anything Christmas with six and a half. <laughs> that theme is done with that one. Uh, Sorry. I thought you were pretty clever with the other ones, though. But <laughs> it's you. a bookend because it's six and a half cups of red wine, six and a half sticks of cinnamon. Okay. Well, then that would be 13 together. So still can't think of anything. <laughs> okay. Heat the wine, sugar, and juices to boiling. Add the spices. Tied together in a cheesecloth bag. Simmer for 30 minutes and serve. What do you tie in a cheesecloth bag? The cinnamon, allspice, and cloves. 
Oh, and like you let that simmer. Oh, I mm-hmm. see. Kind of like a little tea bag. I was confused for a second. I was like, how do you keep the wine in a cheese bag? I don't understand. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> this is what makes it so fun to do this with you. Okay. Now, this may be stored in glass or a plastic container in the refrigerator for about a week. Remove cloves before storing. Big exclamation mark. Why? What does it do if you store with the cloves Maybe it'll become too clovey. <laughs> oh. oh, now I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reheat in a pan or microwave by the cup. Or a crock pot. Or a crock pot. But if you just, if you're keeping it in the fridge and you just happen to want a cup of Glühwein in the afternoon or the morning, <laughs> you just... <laughs> pour yourself a cup and say like mom is enjoying right this now this is tea this isn't anything sure. now if you don't it smells pretty strong if though. you don't have access to a cheesecloth you can put the spices in there you know just throw them in there and just but then you it? have to strain it yeah that's what i would think. so yeah don't leave even one clove in there god forbid <laughs> uh, and i got this from nikki rovera in oh my gosh in 1991 or so so it's an old recipe but it's very tasty mm, i'm jealous i'm very oh and jealous. it smells so good it just reminds me of the, i love the smell i know it reminds me of the chris kindle marks you know in germany well you don't know but yeah <laughs> okay no well i have to confess for the true crime this week Okay, so pregnancy brain is a real thing. Like, legitimately, it's a real thing. And then you're, we're talking about Christmas here, which is like, you know, two weeks past. Sorry, guys. For some reason, I thought this was going to be our Christmas episode when I started doing research for this. But I think we, like, added another episode in yeah, there. Yeah, we did. We ended up, I don't know what we did. But so I picked this thinking it was our Christmas episode. So it's not a Christmas true crime, but you'll... You'll see. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> okay. I just think it's funny that you guys are just getting some extra Christmas, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Oh, so, but the true crime story this week takes place around the area of North Pole, Alaska. <laughs> see? See where I went with that one? Yeah. Okay. So this little town, just like the name, you can assume it's Christmas there year round. It's really small. The most recent census said like 2,000 people lived in North Pole. In Google Maps, I wanted to kind of like look around the town and see what it looked like. And here's some fun Christmassy things I found, again, because I thought this was the (laughs) dang Christmas episode. Uh, But I have to share. So there's like St. Nicholas Drive. There's Blanket Boulevard. And then there's like a coffee place called the North Polar Expresso. Oh, that's cute. Um, There's the North Star Volunteer Fire Department. There's Mistletoe Drive, Spruce Branch Drive. There's an Elf's Den restaurant and lounge. And then there's the Santa Claus House with Antler Academy, where his reindeer are trained. And you can visit those two places. Uh, They've been open for like 70 years. And there's like handwritten letters from children that are sent there hanging on the walls. There's the naughty and nice list. Santa's there from like October to the end of December. You know, when Christmas is over and the podcast stop talking about Christmas normally. Sorry. (laughs) But then they have reindeer reindeer academy where they have real reindeer there and you can go and visit the reindeer so yeah it's pretty stinking cute yeah okay so back to true crime and that's all for the christmas so we are moving on to january here we go (laughs) we're jumping in the year is 1979 and glenda and jerry sodeman were newlyweds they had just had their first baby They were a young couple. Glenda was just about 20 years old. So Glenda was from North Pole, but she had moved back there with her new husband. And they were like really excited to start their future together in her hometown as a young family. August 29th, 1979, Jerry kisses his baby and his wife goodbye and heads to work. When he returns home, the baby is in her crib, but Glenda is nowhere to be found. Oh, no. And as I just described, and from all accounts, Glenda is in a happy place in her life. She's newlywed. Mm-hmm. She's got a baby. So it wouldn't make sense for her to just take off. No, and it wouldn't make sense. 
Jerry reported her missing right away. And it was it was literally like she just vanished. You had no idea where she went. Then on October 1st, a young boy out hunting discovered the remains of a young female about 10 miles outside of North Pole off Richardson Highway between an area known as Moose Creek and it's near the Eielson Air Force Base. Oh, jeez. I'm going to post a map on our social media uh, so that you can visualize the areas I'm going to talk about. But you have the larger city of Fairbanks, Alaska. Then about 14 miles southeast is North Pole. And very nearby there, maybe 7 to 10 miles, is this really small area called Moose Creek. But this little area is right outside of, of Eielson Air Force Base. Right. The base and Fairbanks are about 26 miles apart. Oh. That's just the span of the area I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And to set the stage a bit more, Alaska, and then this area in particular, it's cold. It's really heavy woods. There's lots of wildlife. And did I mention it's cold? Cold. <laughs> I read that a normal winter is negative 20 in Fairbanks. That's normal. Their lowest temperature. Do you want to guess what their lowest temperature ever has been? Negative 50. Oh, no. Let's try negative 66 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah. So my sister lives around this area. And I was talking to her on the phone the other day complaining that it was going to be like seven degrees out here in Kansas City. And she just rolled her eyes and she's like, Beth, it's negative 50 right now outside. I go, "Okay, shutting up now. (laughs) I could not do that. Yeah. So the female body that was discovered was found in some isolated woods in a gravel pit just 10 miles from her home in North Pole near the Air Force Base. The body was discovered clothed. She was lying on her back. She had been strangled and she had been shot in the face with a pistol. There were no signs of sexual assault and they needed dental records because she had been shot in the face to prove that this was Glenda Soderman. Wow. State troopers had no leads. They had no idea how this woman literally vanished from her home and was found a couple months later, in this manner. Now, Glenda's husband, Jerry, was the biggest suspect to them. Yeah, of course. As most situations, the husband is looked into first, those closest to the victims, especially with him being the last to see her alive. Now, he took a polygraph for the troopers, and he was he worked with them, but he did fail his polygraph, making things look even more suspicious. But Mm -hmm. besides the polygraph, they had no other source of evidence on Jerry. Time went on and with no answers on what happened to Glenda. And the small town of North Pole is set in a panic as 11-year-old Doris Oring is announced missing. She was last seen riding her bike on Badger Road. There was a huge search party and her bike was discovered near mile marker 9 on Badger Road, hidden in the bushes off the road. More people joined in the search and searched the woods where her bike was found. And now there were some witnesses in this case, one being her brother, Thomas. He stated that just two days prior, he remembered seeing his little sister riding her bike on Badger Road, and she had stopped to chat with a man pulled over to the side in a bluish car with his hood up. The man was in an all-blue outfit, and he assumed it was a military or an Air Force uniform. Oh. I mean, the Air Force base is right there, so that wouldn't Mm -hmm. be uncommon Mm -hmm. if he were in an Air Force uniform. The man also had a mustache. The two chatted for a while. Thomas told police it was just simple chatting, and then two days after that, near the same area is where the bike was found and where she was supposedly taken from. There were other witnesses, two others, I believe, who saw a vehicle near where the bike had been found before it had been found. They saw the man speed away from the area, and it seemed to them that there was a, he was struggling with something in the back seat. Neither witness could give a description, so voluntarily they went under hypnosis. <laughs> okay, did that divulge anything? <laughs> uh under hypnosis they said that it was a late model vehicle in a blue shade so just like thomas had said right it was a white male with combed back light brown hair 
he either had sunglasses or eyeglasses on. And I mean, from all of that, it really did seem to match the description that the brother had given. So because these descriptions were so similar, they made a sketch. A thin man who was wearing aviator sunglasses, had a mustache, military style cut haircut. But I mean, come on, a military haircut and some thin white dude in a military uniform near an Air Force base. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Good luck with that. Sorry, but at least they put out word that this little 11 year old is missing and a man has her. Now, police weren't connecting Glenda and Doris's case. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I I know you said the date, but my mind wasn't working. How far apart Uh, were these? These were a few months apart. Oh, just a few Mm -hmm. months. Okay. The main thought in Doris's case was that they did really believe that whoever had taken Doris was a military man. So they went to the base and they asked the security for a list of cars that were registered on the base. They got a list of 550 names and licenses. And from there, they started digging. Wow. I mean, what are you even really looking for? That's just, it's hard. I guess looking at the cars to see what, who had a blue car. A blue car. Yeah. Seven months later, so January 31st, 1981, another young woman, 20-year-old Marlene Peters, an indigenous woman from Tanana, I'm so sorry, Tanina, T-A-N-A-N-A. So it's spelled like banana, but with a T. So I'm sorry. I don't know how to pronounce that. But she was last seen in Fairbanks trying to hitch a ride. Her father was sick with cancer, and he was in Anchorage. And her whole family was in Anchorage with him because he was really sick. So she was hitchhiking the long trip from the city I can't pronounce, Tanana, to Anchorage. So she had made it to Mm. Fairbanks. And from Fairbanks to Anchorage is like six more hours. Yeah. So she was seen, last seen in Fairbanks, hitching a ride. And when she didn't show up in Anchorage with her family, like she was supposed to, when she was supposed to, and they didn't hear from her, They became very worried. They reported her missing and police were starting to become a little suspicious, but that the three cases had something to do with one another, but not like one woman was taken from her home and her body was found. And then when one was a little girl and then one was taken while hitchhiking. Right. There's nothing to tie them together. Then about five weeks later in early March, 16-year-old Wendy Wilson was walking in Moose Creek. And remember, that's that small little area outside the Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I believe, and I could be wrong, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, Moose Creek is off the base, but a lot of airmen and military men that worked on the base lived in Moose Creek. Okay. So Wendy Wilson was walking with one of her friends and they were walking to Wendy's boyfriend's house. It was getting really cold and yucky out. So Wendy's friend turned to head back home. She looked back to see Wendy chatting with someone who had pulled over to the side of the road in either a light blue or a white truck. Oh, no. Okay. They chatted for a while before Wendy got into the truck. Once Wendy was reported missing, police were about 100% certain all the cases were by the same perpetrator. But Doris, the little girl, Mm -hmm. was seen getting into a blue car. Right. And now Wendy is seen getting into either a light blue or a white truck. Truck. Mm -hmm. So again, some of them are like, I think we have somebody picking up hitchhikers. But then others aren't quite sure. And we have to remember, too, that this is the 80s. This is happening in 81. So, you know, a serial killer is a newer thing in the last, like, 10 years. It's not a very common thing. You have some people believing that they're all tied, and then you have others not. Because some things connect and some things don't. And now you've only found one body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... That being said, three days after Wendy was last seen, workers on the transatlantic pipeline discovered her body. And her body was discovered 32 miles outside of Fairbanks, but in the Isleson Air Force Base area. She had been strangled and shot in the face. But this time there was a difference. She had been shot by a shotgun. And I hate to be super graphic, but a shotgun That would absolutely obliterate a person's face. 
So although it's the same MO, police are a little confused. Again, you have a bluish car and a white truck, and then you have strangulation is the same and being shot in the face is the same. And I have two different weapons. So are we looking for two people that are working together? Is is this all tied? Like, so again, they're still trying to connect all these pieces. In May, nine weeks after finding Wendy, they find Marlene, actually only two miles from Wendy. Oh, geez. Again, strangled and shot in the face with a 16-gauge shotgun, just like Wendy. Mm -hmm. Just to kind of sum it up, Glenda, Wendy, and Marlene, their bodies have been found in around the same area, killed the same ways. And little Doris is still missing. That same month that they found Marlene, so May of 1981, another young woman goes missing. Jeez. 18-year-old Lori King. She was also hitchhiking in the Fairbanks area. Fairbanks had a serial killer on their hands. The area had a lot of volunteers set up to search the area where the bodies were found to see if they could find any clues. And a lot of the people, if they saw any hitchhiking, they would write down the vehicle type, the vehicle license plate, the description of the driver if they saw it, just so that if somebody else goes missing, they say, well, I saw a hitchhiker or they were really diligent and keeping track of hitchhiking now in the area. But that would be so hard to tie Glenda and Doris to these other ones because they weren't hitchhiking. No, Glenda wasn't hitchhiking, no, but she was killed. Her M- the MO was the exact same. She was killed the exact same way and found with in the a same, different weapon, but found in the same area. Right. But with a different weapon, which, okay, uh, but the little girl wasn't hitchhiking either. No, but she was still on an abandoned road by herself and obviously very friendly to stop and talk to people. Yeah. Pretty easy. I mean, that's, okay. that sounds terrible for me to say, but. She obviously, if it's the same person that stopped two days prior, she obviously didn't have a problem stopping and saying hi and talking to strangers. Yeah. 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 So all of these women and young girls, and they don't have a person of interest, though. They really have nowhere to go. They have no leads except for Glenda's husband, Jerry. Remember, he failed his polygraph. Mm -hmm. But now all of these other women, it just doesn't make sense. No. In the fall of 81, in September, four soldiers hunting for rabbits find Lori King. She had been strangled and shot with a shotgun to the face. Again, on Johnson Road near the Air Force Base. So this area was now deemed the killer's, quote, dumping grounds. Mm -hmm. Now, Lori's body was found on a federal reservation. So the FBI got involved in the case right away. I was wondering. Yeah, okay. Okay, so let's keep in mind, this is, again, 81. There are no computers where you can file things away and share evidence or information in a broader area. It's all by hand. It's all manually done. They believed that this guy had to be on the base, right? The dumping grounds is right next to the base. He was seen in a uniform. He has to work on the base. So they stalk the entrance of the base waiting for a looking at people, men driving white cars, blue trucks, blue cars, white trucks like they are trying what they can. I mean, they worked this case. A state trooper on the case, his name was Sam Bernard. He flew to Atlanta to chat with the men that had worked the Atlanta child murder case. Because that happened Uh around the exact same time. And that had been solved at this point. That had been solved. But that was a serial killer. One of the Mm -hmm. firsts in Atlanta. And again, it was the same time frame, 79 to 81. And he wanted to see how they did it. And they used a computer to organize all of their evidence and share evidence to different jurisdictions and whatnot. So Anchorage, he came back and Anchorage built a computer just for (laughs) this case A task force was organized just for this case and they could work with other agencies in this with this with this. And then the FBI also put profilers on the case. And again, this is a brand new thing. This has only been happening for a few years. Uh, At the time, I think profiles were about 80 percent accurate. Mm -hmm. But, But, you know, if anything, it limits down who to look for. Sure. Now, 
The FBI, their profile stated that it was a white man and he was a civilian, that he lived by himself, he had trouble keeping a job, and that he drank a lot. And I I just have to mention here, too, though, that Jerry Sodeman was still being questioned and he was actually brought in and issued another polygraph test. And he didn't fail this one, but it was inconclusive. Dang it. So they kept bringing him in for more questionings, and they had a specialist come in and ask him questions. And he actually found that poor Jerry Sodeman had a heart murmur. It would have been impossible for him to pass a test because it 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 checks for irregular heart right. beats you know, when you get nervous and everything else. So he never would have passed. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Wow, this poor guy, he's lost his beloved wife. He's taking care of a baby and he keeps getting drug into the police station. I know, poor guy. So it was around this time that the abductions and the killings stopped. Okay, so either their guy died, was arrested and is now in jail somewhere, or he was working on the Air Force Base and he's been transferred. Mm-hmm. So the last body, Lori King's, was found in September of 81. So they have a date. They looked into records of those transferred after that date, around that date. Mm -hmm. And they started comparing those records to the 550 names on the list of those cars they got. (laughs) Wow. Before. They also used their fancy new computer and they put out a bulletin to all of 49 states of this guy's MO. Hitchhikers, strangulation, shot in the face. Is there any murders of young women that matches this? And in November of 81, there was a tip that came in from Harriet, Texas. A young woman was abducted and found murdered, strangled, and shot in the face. So that same trooper from before, Sam Bernard, he goes out to Texas to chat with them. And he wasn't greeted very nicely. The police out there were like, oh, no, no, we know who did this. It's some guy who sells meth out here. But Sam Bernard isn't sold on that story. So he cross references those that were transferred to Shepherd Air Force Base, which was near where this young woman was killed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from Ileson Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. And then he cross references all of those that transferred. And those 550 people who had the vehicles that were allowed to go Can't on the Air Force them. Base. Okay, that list is mega important. Now it's dwindling down, though. They have one hit. They have one name. No. Thomas Richard Bundy. And yes, I know Bundy. that sounds Not like Bundy. Bundy. <laughs> Bundy. Bundy. Okay. It's spelt like Sunday, with, but with a B. And he goes by his middle name, Richard. That's how most people knew him. Not only had he been stationed at Ileson Air Force Base during the time of the murders out in Alaska, he was transferred to the area of this new kill in Texas. He also had a blue car and a white truck. (gasps) Bingo. He also had a lot of write-ups on him. He had difficulties and issues with his female coworkers. Mm -hmm. So who is Thomas Richard Bundy? He was born September 28th, 1948 in Nashville, Tennessee, and he had a pretty tough upbringing. His father was a World War II vet who was very emotionally and physically abusive to Richard and his mother. He had, his father had some undiagnosed mental disorders from what I understand, probably from being in World War II. Sure. But it seemed like it was beyond that as well. He ha- Richard had an older brother. I think he was like 13 years older than Richard. And mm-hmm. I didn't read a lot. I didn't see a lot about him. I don't know if he was abused by his dad or not. But I know Richard definitely was. He took on some hard abuse. He struggled with that at home. But also as a young kid, Richard was actually very obese as well. He was 300 pounds huh? as a young kid. And obesity back then was very rare and so he was i'm sure he took on a lot of bullying he 300 did 300 pounds holy guacamole he did pretty well in school 
He did pretty well in school. He had friends. When he was 14, 15 years old, his father died. And the day before his father's death, Richard had taken a really bad beating from his father. So on the day of his dad's funeral, Richard didn't even attend. He went to some band concert. Wow. Now, on research on him, it's hard because a lot of this, I always forget the word. What is it like? You know what happens, but you're looking back on a situation. Like in hindsight. hindsight. Yeah. So a lot of people came forward and were like, yeah, I was friends with him. And he was really sadistic. Like he would pinch you and you'd bruise so hard. And But then I read that he had friends. So if this kid's going around pinching people or hurting animals like I read, or why would he have so many friends? I don't know. It's just, are people looking into these little minor things that happened and making them right. bigger? You know what I mean? Which is what happens. So yeah. it's, it's hard in my research to sit here and say, he was such a bully and he was really mean because I don't, I don't, I don't know. Because he did right. have friends and he, you know, he passed his classes, but he was really bullied at home, I think, by mm-hmm. his dad especially. He graduated from high school. He married his high school girlfriend. And very shortly after that, he joined the Air Force. When he was stationed in Southeast Asia at a time, his wife stayed back in the States and she had an affair And then she actually got pregnant from that affair. And when Richard came back, the two reconciled and he raised the little boy. Wow. A few years later, the two had a daughter together. And research did say, though, that he treated his daughter very kindly. He's a doting father with his daughter. But he wasn't that nice to his little boy. He didn't treat his wife all too well either. He was seen abusing his wife, beating her. A lot of stories I read said that they would go on camping trips with some friends and she was always kind of made to carry all the heavy bags. And if she fell or tripped, he'd mock her and make fun of her. And some resources even said that he kicked her sometimes, like yelled at her, like, get up. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, he grew up in a very misogynistic household. Mm -hmm. His dad was very misogynistic. And treated his mother really poorly. So unfortunately, like unfortunately we all hear, the cycle continues. Mm -hmm. And he was pretty darn successful in his work. And he moved up the ranks fairly quickly. He was working in Alaska as a technical sergeant. And he was the instructor for the recruits. His female co-workers were not very fond of him. He was hostile. And they said he was inappropriate with sexual remarks to women. And we have to think, I'm not a therapist, but he watched his mother get beaten and belittled. And then he was beaten and his mom never stepped up to protect him. Mm -hmm. And then after his father died, I guess his mom left him and he was raised by some family friends. Oh, so I could understand him having bad feelings, negative feelings towards his mother. And I think that that regenerated into women in general Mm -hmm. in general yeah and he actually recognized this between the known first and second murder in alaska he sought help from a therapist the counselor remembered discussing the issues of unresolved issues that richard had with his father that's what richard really struggled with it was almost like he wanted to prove to his dad that he wasn't this obese kid anymore that he was becoming something in the air force he had lost a lot of weight he was very trim he really wanted to prove that to his dad but his dad wasn't around anymore and he Mm -hmm. was frustrated with that which is so sad because his dad was an abuser he shouldn't care what his father thought but unfortunately that's still his father happens yes yep he wanted his dad though to see also his successes in work and his authoritative relationship with his wife and his health his weight so it just that was really something that hurt him and then he he saw that he was struggling with women he had resentment towards women and he talked to this counselor about it so this is really fascinating but remember how his first victim glenda was shot in the face with a pistol Mm -hmm. but the rest of his victims were shot in the face with a shotgun so months after his visits with his therapist the therapist was arrested for shooting his own wife with a shotgun. And interestingly enough, that's around the same time that Richard switched to a shotgun. Oh, my gosh. How bizarre is that? How coincidental yeah. is that? Well, it might that not be. That was his therapist. Someone he looked up to. Somebody he trusted. Eh, so, as you can actually see here from Bundy, the FBI profile was totally incorrect. 
They said again <laughs> that the killer was a male over 35, single or divorced, civilian, trouble holding on to a job, and a heavy drinker. Well, he was 34 and he was married. He had two children. He was in the military. He had a solid job and he never drank. Really? Never. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> so that good old trooper that went out to Texas, he goes back and he goes to visit the Bundy household. Richard was very kind. He declined a polygraph, declined a search of his home or vehicles. I mean, they didn't have a warrant. So the trooper is kind of stuck, but he knew in his gut this was the guy. Mm -hmm. So he got a picture of Richard and took it back with him to Alaska. And with a photo lineup, he showed it to the witnesses that went under that hypnosis, which still just blows my mind that that's actually like you see that in movies and stuff. But it's so funny when that happens in real life. I'm sorry. I'm interested I don't, in that. I don't think they use it anymore. I don't think they do either, but the fact that they, they did. Used to. They used to. I I know that. Yep. <laughs> it might be something I have to cover for Patreon because that is, that's just crazy to me. How does that? Okay, anyway, totally sidetracking here. There's a photo lineup of Richard as well as pictures of his cars, his car and his truck. And he shows the witnesses and Thomas, the brother of the little girl that was taken. Mm -hmm. And they picked out the correct pictures every time. So oh, now he him. really, really, really knows it's this guy. <laughs> Sorry, that just reminded me. I said really a lot. There was a review left on Apple Podcasts that told me I used really too much. <laughs> so, sorry. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> Great show, but Beth, <laughs> if I can make one correction, you use really too much. <laughs> They're right, though. They're right. They're, they are absolutely correct. Uh, and thank you for the great review, though. Honestly, appreciate it. Moving on. He knew that they had their guy. So they needed more so that they they needed more evidence so that they could bring him back to Alaska because now they, they need warrants for all of these for a search, for an arrest. And they're in Alaska. He's in Texas. They're out of state. Like right. It's, it's crazy. A group of troopers from Alaska go to Texas and they get a motel room and they kind of stage it a bit to make it look like they had been there for a while. And then they call good old Thomas Richard Bunday up on the phone and they say, hey, let's chat. And he's like, OK, he came to the motel multiple times. He'd even come early for their appointments and he would stay for hours chatting with them. They chatted about everything but the murders, of course. He was very collected. He's very chill. He was like buddying up to them. After a week of these meetings, Richard showed up at the motel, but he wouldn't speak or come inside. Instead, he gave them a piece of paper and he left. The note said that he had enjoyed their chats. He had really enjoyed getting to know them, but he had not done what they thought he had done. It was at this point investigators got a search warrant for his home and vehicles. They walked away from these searches with bags of items. But remember, the murders happened in Alaska. They're now in Texas. So it's not even the same house. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, hopefully maybe he kept something. So he stood by their side the entire search, which I guess is really uncommon and looks kind of suspicious. But he just like walked around with them the whole time as they're doing their search. And they found newspaper clippings of the murders in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And they asked him, like, so why do you have these? And he's like, oh, they're souvenirs. And they kind of looked at him and he's like, oh, oh, not souvenirs like that. Souvenirs because I lived in Fairbanks at the time. Yeah. OK. Sicko. Yeah. <laughs> and later on, his wife, she said that she had found, I think in this move, one of their moves, she had found pictures of women um, like bond bondaged, bonded mm -hmm. up like mm -hmm. tied behind their back and stuff on their mouths and stuff. Um, some nude, most of them though were clothed and she asked him about it and he was like, Oh, these are women that just really needed my help. Don't worry about it. And she just threw him away and women that needed his help. Yeah. But you have to remember though that cause she just threw them away and didn't question him about it again, but she's being abused as well. So yeah. she's, she's very, scared of him. she's very compliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Back in Texas, they got their search done. Again, they are just praying they find something, but they're also in the process of issuing 
an arrest warrant. And this is coming from Alaska. It's going to take them some time to get uh, because he wasn't about to go back to Alaska by himself. Mm -mm. So they do their search. And a few hours after they leave the search, he calls one of the troopers and he says, hey, guy, I think you took a set of my car keys while you were searching. And they actually had on accident. So they're like, <laughs> oh, shoot. Like, we'll bring them over tonight. Sorry about that. And he's like, oh, no, it's OK. I'll come get them tomorrow morning, like around 9 a.m. And the trooper sensed that he that Richard, like, wanted to kind of talk. Like He could sense that he still wanted to have a conversation. So he was really forthcoming with them. And he's like, you know, these crimes aren't going to go away. Like, this is happening. We're in the process of this. If you just talk to us you're gonna make things a lot easier and he's just like well you know i'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m the next morning richard arrives at the motel like planned and he's actually early he sits down with his buddy officers and they try one last time with him please tell us and it's finally when they say we really need to know where little doris is Her Mm -hmm. family really wants closure. Remember, hers is the only body they hadn't found, the little 11-year-old. Where is Doris? And this is when Richard starts to cry and confesses everything. He said he killed over five women and girls, but he didn't know why. He shared all the details and explained the area of the Isleson Air Force Base where he had strangled and left little Doris. He agreed to go back to Alaska with the officers so that he could show them where the body was. Now, they couldn't arrest him because they're still waiting for the arrest warrant and it's out of their jurisdiction. So he's he's agreeing, though, to go with them without being arrested. Mm -hmm. But there's no direct flight from Texas to Alaska. They're really worried that mid in one of their stops, he's going to change his mind. He's going to disappear, like take off. Yeah. But then the Alaskan governor gave troopers a private plane that would fly directly to Alaska. Whoa. And they scheduled it for March 18th, 1983. But Bundy didn't show up. The officers called the troopers that were placed on surveillance of Bundy. But somehow on his motorcycle, he had snuck away. He dropped off his taxes at an H&R block. (laughs) Good citizen that he is. And then made an escape. Going 100 miles per hour. He crossed over the lines in the road and drove right into an oncoming truck. (gasps) It was not accidental. The truck driver said it was very intentional. He had even tried to go off the road. He had taken the coward's way out and it was deemed a suicide. I mean, this guy, he strangled by his own two hands. He strangled to death these women, these girls. I think the scariest people in this, I think only the scariest people in this world could do that. There was no sign of sexual assault or abuse on any of the victims. It was as if he was stimulated by the strangulation. Mm. And then to make sure that they were dead, he shot the victims in the face. That, that's, that's what he claimed is he wanted to make sure they were dead. But his choice of weapon, and I apologize for the graphic nature of this again, but a shotgun, it, that takes away, that dehumanizes these women. That dehumanizes these girls. That takes their face well, takes away their from them. Identity away. You know how, how some people kill and then cover their victims with a blanket or something. It's more of a loving gesture after, you know, if you can yeah. say that. But it sounds like this guy just wanted to, had so much pent up anger or something. He just wanted to make them disappear. Ugh. You know, I, that's, did they ever find little Doris's body? They found Doris in 1986. Her little skull was found in a remote area near Allison Air Force Base. So that's three years after mm. her little body had been out there for about six years. And then from the search warrant, when they obtained, they got hair samples from his vehicles and some hair samples did match Wendy Wilson and ammunition that they found in the search also matched shotgun shells that were found at the scene. So, I mean, this obviously was the guy, just a very, not very well known serial killer, Uh uh-uh. but just a horrible, horrible human being. So those women that the wife said she found the photos of. Were they victims too? 
of his? These could have been these five. Okay. Or they could be additional five. He said he only killed five. Okay. Hmm. All righty. Very that strange. Is the true crime story of Thomas Richard Bunday. First true crime of 2023. Okay. Moving on. Onto the paranormal, which I actually had fun with because <laughs> this is why I laughed in the very beginning when you said that you were doing a true crime from the North Pole. My paranormal is from Fairbanks. <laughs> oh my gosh, we definitely, wow, thinking the same here. We had our Christmas theme, now we're think, thinking the same area. That's really funny. Oh, okay. Uh, you had already mentioned some things about Fairbanks. It is the largest and coldest city in the interior region of Alaska and the second largest city in the state. All right, Fairbanks. <laughs> now, this is a place that we are going to visit. I'm going to ask you to bring some of your <laughs> ghost things to. Oh boy. Okay. If I <laughs> if I have space, I am bringing the baby, the new baby with me. We're going to have a yeah. lot of crap to bring to Alaska. Well, then you got to give it to me ahead of time and I'll bring it. Okay. Okay. Number 1, if you're going to visit Fairbanks, you have to stay someplace, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would assume Now there so, are yes. quite a few quite a few hotels actually, nice yeah. hotels to stay at. But I'm going to talk to you about the Westmark Fairbanks Hotel. It is known to be very haunted. Doors open and close, disembodied voices, room 277, a very large man who makes himself present around midnight. Very large man? Yes. <laughs> every single report, every single... No wonder he's haunting. People are just calling him, oh, I saw a very large man. Oh. Yep. yep, you must have He's seen the very large man. He's always described as a large man. That's sad, poor guy. So this large man <laughs> makes himself present around midnight or thereafter, never before midnight. Because he's waking up for his midnight snack. Oh, that's mean. <laughs> oh, Beth, you just added to his hurt feelings. Okay. I know, I'm sorry, that was rude. So what he does is a little weird. <laughs> And that doesn't add to his hurt feelings. Okay. He pushes on beds. Okay. Don't know what that means, but he pushes on <laughs> beds. He pokes guests in the shoulder. Uh, rude. He's trying to get their hey, attention. Hey, you got something to eat? <laughs> you got a snack for me? Wake up. And then reports. <laughs> oh, no. Reports have him running his finger along the carpet. How do they know that that's what that is? Do are they, do they see, see it? it? Do they see it? Does that have a like does that have a unique sound? I'm just saying, but again, this is in more than one source. And how do they know that it's a very large man? So are they visually seeing a very large man on his hands and knees taking his finger and stroking the carpet? I don't know. How, how, how? There's like no detail in this, but I want to know. <laughs> I mean, it's like he pushes on the bed, then he pushes them actually in their shoulder. Oh, okay, maybe if I stroke the carpet, you'll. I don't up. get it. I don't get it. He just strokes the carpet. That's bizarre. I don't get it. <laughs> okay. From the website hauntedplaces.org, I found some comments from people that have stayed at the Westmark Hotel. Colleen, in October 13th, 2019, wrote this. In the summer of 2016, we stayed at the Westmark, our first night of an Alaskan vacation. The following morning, we met up with our travel friends. We talked about our first night's sleep without the sun setting. That just sounds terrible to me, but anyway. Oh, horrible. As this was in the summer, I had a bad nightmare of a large man pounding at our door to let him in. Oh. I could feel the room shake. My heart was pounding. That was just My him friend shaking then, your bed, but anyway. <laughs> that could be. My friend then pulled out a written story description 
of the exact man in my nightmare. Oh. We stayed in room 327. That's not the that, room he haunts. That's why he was that knocking is on not, the door trying to get in. The haunt. The he wanted to stroke to that carpet. <laughs> hey, you have a newer carpet. Let me feel it. <laughs> and this is from Anonymous, January 19th, 2017. November 7th and 8th, I stayed at the Westmark in room 480. While there, I had kept the door locked. At one point, I was on my laptop and I heard the door try to open. Ooh. Ooh. Checking it, I found that both locks on the door had been unlocked. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> that same night, I had the TV remote up on the bed at arm's length. I was sitting there but didn't notice anything. I was on my phone. I reached for the remote and it was gone. Searching for it, it was on the floor as if it had been thrown. Mm, okay, so, so far, she forgot to lock the door. That's why it was unlocked. You probably knocked the remote down when you were looking for your phone. No, they were on their phone. But, you know, maybe the remote was on the bed on the bed I am and they constantly looking for my remote. Constantly. I know. I'm looking for your remote when I'm at your house. It, <laughs> that remote does not stay in place. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I need to get one of those trackers on it. I really do. <laughs> yeah. On the 8th, the same thing happened. I didn't see it move. It was on the bed, and then it wasn't. Because you kicked it off. Shucks. But what if this stuff is true? How spooky would that be to have, you know you lock your door. I mean, I when I'm in a hotel, that would be I always scary. lock the door. That I would always be scary. lock the door. Like as soon as you come inside, you lo- yeah. turn around and lock the door. I lock yeah. the door. You know, if it's somebody like me, I know I've locked that door, and they have two locks, so they lock both of them. Heard some rattling at the door. Turned around. Both locks undone. Even if the door was locked and you're hearing rattling at the door, that's scary. It, yeah. Especially if you're scary. obviously in a room by yourself. Yeah. Mm. I don't like that. So that alone is spooky. But then the remote flying across That remote the one is too day-to-day for me to be scary. So... <laughs> <laughs> From what I saw, the hotel does not offer much as far as food. So our next step is a haunted restaurant. Cool. And may I suggest the Pump House Restaurant. Is this anywhere near where we're going to be staying? It's in Fairbanks. So So we're going to the Fairbanks area for my sister's wedding in the fall. We should totally go to this restaurant at least. I know. I know. Oh, I've got two places we have to go see okay so the little bait my new baby's just gonna be our new little ghost adventure hunter with us yeah or else you have plenty of people family coming to leave her with <laughs> that's true okay the pump house was originally a pump house station imagine that it was built in the 1890s to send water upstream during the gold rush days this building has quite a bit of history and spirit sightings. Reports of a white figure coming out of the kitchen. Well, at least it's not a dark figure. I mean, <laughs> or a large man. <laughs> <laughs> he was, and he was a shadow figure. So That's... he was a darker figure. What if it was a large woman? Nothing says it was a large woman. I'm just saying. <laughs> How do we know if it's just a shadow? What if it was a, a cow? We don't know. A cow? <laughs> I'm just saying, if it's just a shadow, how do you know? Moving on. They see somebody coming out of the kitchen. Okay. A white figure. A white figure. Employees closing the restaurant have reported disembodied voices. Now, the following is from the website yourghoststories.com. The commenter is Dr. Dom Von Doom. Dom Von Doom? Mm Mm-hmm. One night, I was a dishwasher. I was done far later than usual. I was sitting in the bar having a drink with the night watchman. Yeah, yeah, don't judge. That's what he says. I'm not judging. Really? Sounds we're the last people. We're the last people (laughs) to judge you, dude. Okay. And we were talking. I happened to look over for some reason towards the dining room to which the bar was connected, and perpendicular to our sitting situation was the kitchen doors. As I looked over, I saw a white figure featureless as far as I could tell, 
coming out of the kitchen doors completely sideways. Mm? What? It just stared at me and I stared at it. Okay, I'm just picturing somebody coming out sideways like. <laughs> but as they're coming out, they're staring at this guy. I know. So I, imagine me coming so, through the doorway sideways, but staring at you. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't know how for how long, but for some time at least. Okay. The night watchman finally said, Dom, and I turned around and looked at him, and apparently he knew something was up because he said, What did you see? I looked back, and it was gone. You saw a ghost, he said. All I did was nod. We checked the entire pump house. All the doors were locked, and no one else was inside except the two of us. The night watchman told me of experiences he had had, hearing voices, and even one, he told me, he got in a fight with a man late at night that he thought was a burglar. They tossed and tumbled around the bar until he pinned the man on the ground and he disappeared under him. <laughs> now, I don't know if his story was true. He, this, this guy oh, continues. No. Now, I don't know if his story was true. He was known to tell many tall tales around the pump house mm. but the way i looked and what he knew it seemed like he knew exactly what was going on i never saw anything like that there again but the place always gave that creepy feeling and ever since i stopped working there i never went back again <laughs> but we will <laughs> i'm gonna look for a sidestepping ghost and a burglar <laughs> well I'm kind of guessing that the Watchman's tale of the wrestling with a ghost is a little bit well, fabricated. I just want to point out that he's the night watchman and he's having a cocktail while he's working. <laughs> Maybe he had a few cocktails that night. <laughs> just saying. Uh, but, you know, a big exaggerated story about hauntings is fun to tell and also to listen to. So... You got that. You guys are listening, so. <laughs> Next is a place that is worth visiting because it is said to be among some of the scariest places in Alaska. But you don't want to stay there. It's the Birch Hill Cemetery. The cemetery was opened. In, well, you don't want to stay there, do you? I thought you were about to say that about a hotel, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, Mom, if we should say that. <laughs> <laughs> no. The reviews no, are great. You're right, Mom. You don't want to stay at a cemetery. <laughs> the cemetery was open in 1938. They only accept long-term residents. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, it covers about 32 acres on the southwest side of Birch Hill. That's the name, Birch Hill Cemetery. Reports are of a little girl wearing a white dress from the 1900s, a little boy dressed in 1930s clothing, and from some sources, a black figure just standing in the distance and watching. To me, that's about the creepiest. That's that's really scary. From other sources, there's a white lady. Of course. Imagine that. Imagine that. Who flits around the gravestones. Hmm. Just jumping from stone to stone. Jesse Desmond from the Lonely Hipcat blog posted an article. The article is The White Lady of Birch Hill Cemetery, Fairbanks. Jesse is a paranormal investigator who, in 2001, while investigating in the cemetery, got an EVP of a female voice saying, Hi, a simple two-letter word, but picked up in a cemetery. Well, that's just a little frightening, I think. Jesse is a member of PEAK, the Paranormal Explorers of Alaska, who used the cemetery for training of its members. It is oh, pretty that's haunted, cool. I guess, if they use that for a training ground. Many orbs have been captured in photos taken by Peak. Jesse states that sometimes they would hear movement from places in the cemetery where no one was present. In May 2012, she was joined by two members of another paranormal team. They walked to the cemetery asking about the white lady. They picked up an EVP reading of a man saying, Helen, which happened to be at the time that they unknown unknowingly were close to the grave of Helen Findlay. Hmm. It was as they neared the grave that Jesse got a really cool picture of an apparition. 
which she suspects to be the man whose voice was picked up. And if I can, I'll post that picture because it's super cool. I love those kind of pictures. Jesse did research on Helen, which is awesome because, I mean, I like when they take it a step further, not sure. just I was at the cemetery or heard the name Helen. Yeah. But she, you know, takes it and actually does research. Helen was not listed on any plot listing. So the only info Jesse had was on the gravestone. Hmm. She finally found that Helen was 33 when she died at St. Joseph's Hospital on February 22nd. 1956. Helen had a few medical issues, but what ultimately caused her death was a subdural hematoma while she was in the hospital, and that's a brain bleed. Jesse surmised that Helen had a bad fall and hit her head while she was recovering at the hospital from a surgery. How horrible. And this leads into our last Fairbanks haunted place. A fall and hitting your head leads to the next place? Yes. Oh, the okay. Fairbanks Memorial Hospital. Oh. Okay, so I know somebody who works there. And this hospital turned up on every site where I searched for Alaska hauntings. Oh, my gosh. I mean, not just Fairbanks hauntings, Alaska hauntings. This oh, that's Memorial creepy. Hospital popped up every single haunted time. Haunted hospitals. <laughs> And, and it's still a functioning think, hospital, so that's just... Aren't all hospitals haunted, though? I would You'd assume have to think. so. Yeah. The paranormal reports from this location are mm, very interesting and very different. Well, it's not like you can go in with, like, paranormal equipment and start doing a paranormal, you know, an investigation. You want to bet? <laughs> People do that? No, no. Oh. Oh, you were telling me I should do that? No. <laughs> the hospital. That's weird. So it's pretty oh. much just like people's different experiences. It's not so much like an investigation. But that would be really cool to like actually do an investigation of a hospital. All right. Sorry. My, How would you Beth's do that? Beth's mind walk, is like going around. Walk up and down. It, shh, be quiet. <laughs> I know you're delivering a baby, but I am clearly getting an EVP. <laughs> and you're disrupting it with your screaming. <laughs> Nurses around the ER have reported medical machines starting after they've been shut down so the trauma room is said to be haunted there'll be nobody in the trauma room the nurses are seated at their stations and i guess they have screens all around not only at the station but in other places too that they can watch like the ekg on a patient or sure. they can watch you know all this stuff yeah on this screen screens connected to the trauma room and the machines in the trauma room okay there's nobody in the trauma room the screens will all of a sudden pop up and the machines are on oh out of nowhere yeah Oof, creepy and as then, long as the machines don't turn off when they really do need them in the trauma room <laughs> yeah no kidding and then there's room nine that is also an exam room in the er there's just a really suspicious feeling in there a heavy feeling yeah in room nine when it's empty it's just this really strange feeling so a lot of the nurses won't go in there if it's empty oh now i did speak to somebody and ask them personally have you noticed anything and they said well no because every time i've been in there i've been in there because there's a patient there so right, right. <laughs> no no spooky feelings all right <laughs> Now, this is where it gets really weird. The third floor is where the nursery wing is located. Oh. There are many reports from nurses working in this area of hearing babies crying when there were no babies. Oh. Temperatures have known to drop and spirits appear in the nursery right around the time an infant in the wing is close to death. Oh. These spirits seem friendly. And the nurses believe that they are angels sent Aww. to guide the baby to the next life. And as sad as it sounds, the death of a baby, of course, I don't know, it makes it a little bit more, I don't know, it makes it a little less sad with the thought of a baby wrapped in the arms of an angel. Oh, that's, that's sad. I thought it was really interesting that we're not talking about a ghost or 
definitely not a demon or anything. Now we're talking about angels. If if that's what people believe they see, yeah. That's interesting. Isn't that cool, though? Yeah. All right. So, as I said before, we've got some places to investigate this next year, and we are definitely going there. Yeah. So... Did you hear about a woman getting arrested visiting a memorial hospital with a bunch of paranormal equipment? That's going to be mom. <laughs> It's not going to be me. <laughs> I'm going to be at that pub <laughs> looking for the sidestepping ghost. <laughs> be drinking with the late watchman. I'll just ask him if I can have a couple cocktails with him while he's with him. I want to meet that watchman. <laughs> you imagine like a ghost coming through the door sideways doing the grapevine. That's what I'm like picturing because this ghost is like staring at them over his shoulder but walking sideways or not over his shoulder maybe directly because they're perpendicular so but he's like he's just shimmying he's sideways coming <laughs> coming out of the doorway sideways so, weird. so looking weird. directly it's weird and so oh. weird that we picked the same general location for our stories area definitely in all of alaska <laughs> Which is a very large state. (laughs) But I thought it was interesting that Fairbanks is actually the coldest place. Yeah, I saw that too. It's like super cold. Wow. (laughs) No, thank you. I'll take my seven degrees here in Kansas City over that any day. All right. That's that's all the stories. That's all. (laughs) That's all, folks. Okay, well, Mom's going to put her pictures and all of our resources on our website, KillerHangoverPodcast.com. There's a link that's going to be in our show notes that will take you to all of the different links to our PayPal, if you want to buy us a drink, to our Patreon, if you want to join us and check out extra episodes. There's a whole library of extra episodes, interviews, and more there. Uh, Join us for the new year. Why not? There's going to be a lot of fun stuff. We do a lot of personal stuff on there, too. Like, I'll post some, you know, I'll post updates on the new coming baby in April and all that jazz. Uh, Let's see. What else is in those links? Our website's there. Our social media stuff is there. Our YouTube is there. Our YouTube is there. It's all there. So there's a link in the description of this episode in our show notes that'll take you there. <laughs> really, really. Too many theirs. Too many theirs. Really, really too many theirs. All right. Anyway. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. This was a fun one. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. Let's see what this year will bring. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. I love you, kid.